let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times bestselling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. Today, we're in Austin, which is pretty sweet. Um, here visiting my sister. Um, so I'll be here, be here for the next couple of days. And today, we have the honor of speaking with Andrew Rose, the president, chairman, and CEO of Compare.com. How the heck are you today? I'm fantastic. Thrilled to be here. I'm so grateful that you come on the show today, carve out time from your busy schedule to speak to me. So thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, let's jump right in. What is your story? What is my story? Uh, a kid from the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, I shouldn't be where I uh, am today, but uh, some fortuitous whys in the road uh, led me to uh, start multiple companies and uh, now have had the privilege of running Compare.com for uh, more than the last uh, half decade. So uh, I'll give you some more context, but that sort of is the, uh, the postage stamp uh, version of it. Uh, I grew up in the mountains of uh, West Virginia. For your listeners that uh, know of a, an incredibly beautiful place called the Greenbrier, um, it is an incredible resort. Uh, I grew up on the wrong side of the fence of the uh, of the Greenbrier. Um, it is a place that the, uh, the the most wealthy of the world go and enjoy. Uh, and I was uh, one of three kids. Uh, my mother was a school teacher uh, in the town uh, there in the mountains of West Virginia. So that was my my humble beginnings, uh, as if it, if it may say. So you grew up in the mountains mm -hmm. and it seems like you're part of this really interesting community where you grew up. How did that affect you? How did that impact you and, and help you to develop your identity? I, I uh, describe it as I have a habit whenever I'm driving. So you've got your hands on the wheel there. My hand does this all the time. And uh, if you've grown up in uh, rural America, I, I think that's a common thing. It's not a, a West Virginia thing or anything like that. It's a humbleness um, that, that, that's part of you there is uh, nobody is better than anybody else. Uh, and uh, everybody's willing to help anybody else out. Um, you know, you're a community. You're part of the fabric there together uh, of life. And uh I absolutely love being from where I'm from. I think it is an intrinsic part of, of who I've become. And I now find it a challenge living in a much bigger place. I'm here in beautiful Richmond, Virginia, to instill those same things in, uh, in my children, um, because it was a very, very important part uh, of growing up there. Now, I also had uh, the, the great fortune of, of having a, a mother who uh, worked incredibly hard, uh, taught in the public school systems for 30 plus uh, years, uh, did multiple jobs, got her master's degree at night when uh, those things weren't, uh, weren't done. Um, and so I had a fantastic role model for work ethic uh, there. Uh, my father wasn't part of the day-to-day the -day life uh, there. He was living uh, in New York State at the time, but imparted upon me an entrepreneurial uh, pursuit that uh, I also see as part of my, uh, my drive today. I can remember those middle school years when uh, I saw the opportunity to run the school concession stand a whole lot better than it was being done. 
uh, and took it upon myself to do so and saw, you know what, this little business thing, I, I might be half okay at it. And uh, obviously that's uh, translated into part of my life today as well. That's an incredible um, foundation, I feel like, of, of entrepreneurship and work ethic. So it's too, I think, play very well together. Um, you, you talked about instilling those values into your kids. And we talked about them a little bit, but I'm really interested in like labeling them and trying to really understand and, and quantify like what they are. And then how do you instill them? What does that process look like for you? Oh, that's the harder part. So we'll get to that, uh, that last. And I'm certainly not going to proclaim to be an expert at it out there. Anybody that's a parent knows that it's a, uh, it's a work in progress and you have successes and failures all along the way. Uh, and you have to be uh, ready for that. And your children are unique. So you've got to do that. But the, the work ethic uh, is the first uh, first part of it is uh, I'm incredibly fortunate. Uh, the, the life that I have now that uh, has been provided for me through uh, all the work that, that I've done means my children are growing up in a very different environment than than I did. Now, I was very fortunate. You know, we always had food on the table. Uh, we always had a roof over our head. There wasn't a whole lot of money for anything, uh, anything extra. Uh, growing up. Uh, and now, as I said, I'm in a different financial situation. And I want my children to still have some of those same things that, that I talked about that I, that I valued. So we are very careful to try and not give them things. Um, things are disposable. Things go away. Um, you go on a trip and you get a, a, a souvenir of some kind. You go to the mall and you buy a shirt. Um, that souvenir probably isn't going to be all that memorable over time. Um, that shirt, you're going to grow out of it. Um, you know, it's not something that is going to be there forever. But those experiences that you have along the way. Uh, I've been fortunate to take my children to the Grand Canyon, to the, the Redwood Forest in, in, in California. Uh, they've been up and down the East Coast. Those memories, those trips are an important part of the fabric I want for them as human beings. So that's one part of it. But then you get the day-to-day -day life um, and they've got to work hard. We don't give them uh, things. They have to earn them. Um, and you'll see my children out there this weekend. We still mow our own yard. Uh, and prior to mowing the yard, somebody's got to clean up the sticks that fall from, uh, from all the trees and drag those things out to the, uh, to the front driveway. My children get out there and do that. It's that, that work ethic. It brings me back to a story my father, uh, or not a story, but an experience my father instilled in me as well. Again, the hard work ethic. I uh, was able to spend the summer with him um, between my seventh and eighth grade um, school years. And we were in upstate New York, a beautiful part of the, uh, the world there. And my father, we were staying with my great grandmother at the time, says, do you want to go out and chop wood with me in the morning? Oh, I mean, come on, you're going to go out with your dad and chop with this. I've not done this before. This is fantastic. Yes, of course. And we go out and we do it and take the tractor up in the woods and chop a cord of wood. And for those that know what a cord of wood is, you know, you got a decent uh, stack of wood going on there. We chop the tree down and slice it all up, stack it. It's great. Get back home and I'm, I'm whooped. That was great. Thanks. Well, the next morning at 6 a.m., he comes and knocks on the bedroom door. Says, come on, we're going to go out and cut another cord of wood. Round two. Well, it went a whole lot longer in round two. And as, as time has gone on, I have a fisherman's story here where, you know, it was 500 cords of wood. It was 50 cords of wood. It might have been five cords of wood. I don't remember exactly how long it was. But it was at some point in time that summer that uh, I was bemoaning the fact that I had to get up and go cut another cord of wood first thing in the morning. And I didn't want to do it anymore. And he says, why don't you want to do it anymore? He says, this is hard work. Um, and he says, remember that. He says, you've been graced with great fortune to be a relatively smart individual here. And you can use your mind for the rest of your, rest of your days to make money or use your arms. Both of them are noble professions. I don't want to look down on anybody that, uh, that uses their arms because you know what? We need people to do that. But I had the capability of using my mind. And I really figured out in that moment that I wanted to do that. And so now I have to do that same thing with my children 
without us cutting cords of wood. Um, so that's uh, one of the challenges, the work ethic. You know, you're not rarely ever will you be the smartest person in the room, but you can outwork a heck of a lot of people if you have that kind of work ethic. I think one of the things that I really resonated the most with um, about what you said was the, the experiences and you know, my, my parents and, and grandparents, and I've been very, very fortunate to have a very loving, supportive family. I think I'm probably the luckiest person on the planet, right? Uh, but we always went and we would hike, or we would go into the mountains, or we would go horseback riding, or go do something really, really cool and fun like that. And that, to me those memories to me are some of the most precious things that I have in, in my whole life, which is pretty crazy. I mean, I've been alive for only 24 years, but still you think of 24 years and those are the things that really stick out the most is like the most precious things. And I love that you said that because I feel like today we do have a lot of, um, a lot of trouble with, with uh, consumerism and materialism, yep. materialism. Yeah. So well, I mean, do you remember the shirt that you got the uh, vacation between your uh, your 10th and 11th grade year? Not only do you not remember it, um, you know, it's long since gone, but you could tell me the stories of that trip and the stories are there forever. And they are things that over a dinner sitting around a table or with colleagues or whatever it may be that you can share and they influence who you are as a human being. We had the incredible um, fortune. I'm uh, one of the things that is a passion of mine is a long distance triathlon. And I was very, very fortunate to qualify for the world championships last year. And we as a family decided there's not going to be many opportunities for us to ever go to Africa. Well, the world championships were in South Africa. And so we made the choice as a family to say, we're going to go. And we did a safari and we saw things that, you know, I'll never, ever be able to go to a zoo again because it's completely different when you see it in, in real life. And we don't remember the, you know, the shirt that they got there, you know, that we didn't buy those things. What we have is the pictures hanging up in our house that every time you come down the stairs, you see my daughter smiling as she's looking over her shoulder at a rhino, at a rhino. My other daughter staring at a, uh, an elephant, my son staring at a, uh, a zebra or a giraffe, those things last forever. Those memories, those experiences, they don't go away. I love that. I love that. And I actually think that this idea of really creating experiences, I actually think it's very powerful in business too, because if you're just trying to sell a product, that's one thing. Right. I mean, you can have a widget that's better than somebody else's and you know, you can, I'm sure you can have success with that. And by all means, if, if you can, then awesome. But I feel like the, the movers and shifters of the economy are creating experiences. Wow. Your customer. Um, and it's something that, uh, that we try very, very hard here at, uh, at compare.com to do. Uh, now our product is auto insurance. Okay, time to go to sleep. You know, it is not an exciting product. It's not a new phone. It's not a new whatever, you know, something that you get excited about. But everybody that drives a car in the U.S. has to buy auto insurance. And so while I can't necessarily wow you with an experience, I can make the shopping process easy. And what I can wow you with is the savings. And that's where we focus our energy on. And we've been incredibly fortunate to have 70 plus insurance companies partner with us. And you as a consumer can go on in Austin, Texas right now and put all your information in and get back 5, 10, 15, 20. It depends on your particular circumstances, prices from insurance companies. And what the wow factor is, is how much you save. And then what you can do with the savings that you have. This is a product that is a piece of paper. It's a promise and it's an important thing. This is an incredible, I was in a car wreck last week. It's an incredibly important thing to have, but don't waste money on it. 
because over your lifetime, if you don't shop your auto insurance on a regular basis, you can waste twenty to $50,000. And for your listeners, when they're sitting there, it's like, well, you know, what's the wow factor? But twenty dollars to $50,000 should wow most people. Um, and even if you're incredibly wealthy, it should wow you too. That's still an enormous amount of money. That's a year of tuition. That's a down payment on a home. That's several great vacations. I mean, that's real money. And that is an experience in of itself. And when you think about our business, that's what we're trying to do is I can't bring you a sexy product. Savings are sexy. Let's talk about how you got to compare.com. I want to, I want to know the journey uh, from, from the entrepreneurial perspective. Certainly. Well, we, we've got to take a, a few steps back. We'll exit from uh, the mountains of West Virginia. And I was a, numbers and science guy. Uh, I always loved numbers. I love the business. And I thought that meant engineering for me. And I went and did my uh, undergraduate studies at Virginia Tech and had the great opportunity to uh, do an internship, a co-op at DuPont. Fantastic company, great experience. And I got to work in one of their innovation areas. They were trying to come out with a new product um, that was like Tyvek. Now, many of your customers or many of your listeners are not going to know what in the world's Tyvek? Well, when you walk around a neighborhood that's being built and you see those homes that are going up and you see them wrap the white paper uh, around, a, it's not paper. Um, it's actually polyethylene. It's a barrier. Well, they were trying to come up with new and different ways to create that. And I got my internships, my co-ops to go up and work at doing that. And I loved that part of it. But I also realized that I didn't want to work in a plant. I loved the thinking about the practical applicability um, of the, the product there, the business development, if you want to think about it there, the product development. And so why? I went, why did you, why did you love that so much? The watching what products can do. I can remember this particular uh, thing we were working on. I ended up getting a patent for it of all things. So here I was a college kid and I got a patent for this set of fibers that when we, we looked at it, we put it down in a, uh, in a pool of water and it wouldn't soak up anything. We're like, well, that's kind of useless. And then somebody um, spilled oil and we had, you know, here's this junk fibers. We didn't know what the heck to do with. So we went and all of a sudden just touched it, sucked it all up. And so we go, wait a minute, what, this could be a fantastic product to clean up oil spills. It soaks up no water whatsoever, but it just gobbled up oil. And it was that, you know, your light bulbs are going off. What are all the ways that we can do this? What do the product attributes have for this? We found that it had fascinating acoustic properties that if you were gonna build your, uh, your studio and you wanted sound deadening, it would be a great material to have around the room to capture all the extraneous noise. So that just fascinated me. And so I go back to campus and get to, I'm between my junior and senior year here. So changing degrees at this point in time is time consuming and expensive. But I went to uh, the counselor and said, you know, I don't think I want to be an engineer the rest of my life. And the lovely lady looked at me and said, well, being an engineer is going to help you pay off all these student loans you have. Hmm. But I want to be in business. And she made the strong recommendation get a business minor, and then go back and get an MBA afterwards. Okay, that sounds, that sounds great. And so I exited my undergraduate studies, went to work for Shell, and Shell was very generous, allowing me to both get a master's in project management and an MBA. Now, I didn't end up completing my MBA down there because you get life wrinkles. You meet your, uh, your eventual bride now of 20 years, and suddenly you, you, know, you switch motivations there. And so we moved to what now Richmond, uh, Virginia, and I ended up getting my uh, MBA at Darden. I wanted to get uh, that MBA because I thought that's how I was going to catapult myself into running my own business. And I thought my path to running my own business was via consulting. But again, wrinkles in life happen. My wife is now pregnant with our oldest, and she has a wonderful job and wants to continue her career. So she asked, is there any way that you can get a job here in Richmond, Virginia, so that I can continue to do you know, what I'm doing? And uh, 
or a tag team. That's another very important thing is, you know, find somebody that is not only the love of your life, but your tag team partner uh, there. And we said, all right, I'll look. And lo and behold, Progressive Insurance is located here in Richmond, Virginia, one of their bigger uh, offices. And so I said no to all those big name consulting firms, the BCGs, the AT Carneys of the world, and said yes to auto insurance. And you go, how in the heck are we connecting this to entrepreneurship? Well, it was my first opportunity to run a business. And I call it entrepreneurship first. Entrepreneurship, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do this on my own all by myself. Entrepreneurship, in my point of view, is when you do it inside another company. And that's what effectively I was doing. Within Progressive, their structure was already there and I got to run several of their states as the, as the product manager. But it wasn't enough. And when you get those phone calls from a headhunter, sometimes the opportunities just are too enticing. And that persuaded me away to Countrywide. And Countrywide was trying to build their own auto insurance business from scratch. Well, you know what? That sounded awesome to me. I knew auto insurance. I loved building things. And this was a great fit for me. And so I did that for several years before the mortgage crisis. And when I said countrywide, some of your listeners are going to go that countrywide. Sadly, yes, that countrywide. But I was on the insurance side, not the mortgage side. So you know, hold your uh, hold your fire. Um, but I realized that, uh, that that countrywide, while it had been a phenomenal opportunity for me, wasn't going to end up pursuing insurance. Uh, this was uh, during the financial crisis and keeping the banks afloat was, uh, was priority one. And so I stumbled upon a company that no one in the U.S. had ever heard of, Admiral Group, a wonderful lady uh, that I've become uh, very good friends with over the years, was at an auto insurance conference and was there looking for somebody to help build from scratch an auto insurance company. 11 years ago this summer, I started Elephant Insurance, and some of your listeners, particularly those in Texas and Virginia and a few other states, will know Elephant Insurance. And so that was my first true entrepreneurship where I am out, funded by Admiral Group, but starting a company literally from employee one. Now, that's a story. That's awesome. And I love the progression of I'm in school create this patent. And, and by the way, I want to talk about that because it, it didn't seem like that patent ever, there was no resolution to it. I mean, did y'all, did y'all try to take that to market? Like whatever happened with that? Well, you, uh, that, that's part of the, the joy of working for a big company is it was a patent that I was on along with other folks. And that patent is owned by DuPont. Um, and so DuPont could uh, ultimately take that uh, to market. And like many things, it can be a fantastic idea but not something that they're ultimately going to make money off of. So I'm not sure that they ultimately commercialized it, uh, but it showed for me, it was part of the path for me to see that creating new products, creating new businesses was something that was going to get me incredibly excited. But it also taught you that lesson. You may think this is the greatest thing in the world, but at the wrong price to the wrong people, it's not a good commercial product. And you have to have the combination of a great product that people are willing to pay for. Otherwise, it's just a good idea. I think that is a that is a gem of wisdom, a gem of wisdom. Because what I see a lot of the time is because I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, and and you know whether it be guests on the show or, or other people, um, I talk to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. And what I see a lot of the time is maybe they've put in hours and hours and years and years of time and maybe they've even invested money in something and they are so emotionally attached to it that even though like objectively it's an awful business model and it's not working in the slightest, they can't let it go. They can't let it go. It is the equivalent of, of telling somebody your baby's not pretty. It's the business equivalent. And let me tell you what, you tell somebody, you know, I know you love this. This will never work. You know, them are fighting words for some people. (laughs) 
and it's a struggle. Um, and let's be clear, you know, every day is not a bed of roses here. It's a challenge to build a business, a successful business, and to get the market to adopt and change what you're doing. I am trying to change a $240 billion industry that advertises $7.5 billion every year. This is hard and it requires dedication. That's one of the things that you will find, I think is a very common trait amongst entrepreneurs is dedication. Sometimes as you just described it, dedication to a fault. Um, and you do have to take that step back and get that external perspective and say, you know, you're not wedded to this. You don't have days, nights, weeks, months, years devoted to this. What do you think? And sometimes you got to be willing to take that lesson. It's like, man, I know you love this thing, but people aren't going to pay what you need. I had a, um, I've been very fortunate to um, be a founding member of the InsureTech vertical at Plug and Play out in Silicon Valley. All kinds of wonderful innovations. I'm back out there uh, again next week that come through. And there's one in particular that uh, has stood out to me because I thought it was a fascinating product. Um, and it is a leak detection product. If you're a homeowner, one of the things that you are most afraid of is a pipe bursting, your water heater going, whatever, because you think fire can damage. Let's be clear, fire damages big time. Water is brutal. It can tear up your floors. It can ruin everything, mold, mildew, you name it. And he had this beautiful device. And he sat down and told me all about it. And then I said, That's, this is great. I love it. He says, What's your go to, you know, go to market? He says, I'm going to sell it to insurance companies. I said, oh, okay. What's it cost? He says, $200. And I stopped. I said, $200. I said, yeah. Like, and insurance companies are going to buy it from you. Yeah. He says, have you talked to any insurance companies? No, not yet. Like, they're not going to buy it from you. And he just stood, what do you mean they're not going to buy it from you? This is a great device. And it was a great device, but not for $200. The average loss cost for a homeowners per year for water-related losses, all of them, is $160. That's the total loss cost. So the ability for an insurer to spend money on a device that you're putting in there, they might be willing to spend 10 bucks, not 200 For me, it was a great example of here was a great idea that wasn't gonna make it to market in a different way. And my, what I encouraged him to do was, you need to take this to Home Depot or Lowe's. You need to think of this like a home security system. You don't find many insurance companies installing home security systems, but they'll give you a discount if you have one. And so if you can convince consumers to say, install this in your home and I'll give you a discount, you might have a very viable product. But how he was approaching the market wasn't going to work. Well, I think that's really important uh, because I feel like the, the problem that he was trying to solve, like that's a great problem to solve and, and definitely be rigid on that problem. But the path to get there, that, you know, you may need to be a little bit more flexible there. And one of the other things that I've noticed is especially after, after a couple of years of, of pursuing the same project or the same business or just one thing in particular that's not really working is you get into, you get into a rut where you're kind of doing the same things and you're just expecting it to lead to different results. Which I think we've all heard that quote before. Um, but it's hard to actually get creative and innovative when you're so entrenched in it that I love what you said of like, Hey, take a step back, look at it, evaluate it, and then come up with a new game plan to, to move forward. I love that. A key one um, that we also use is talk to your customer because you get very, very close to your product and you know exactly how your product works. And after you have figured, you know, I use it uh, now I'm, a, I'm an iPhone guy. There's Android folks. Once you get comfortable and familiar with the, the device, you know how to make things work. Now, the first time you pick up the phone, you hand it to somebody and say, um, I want you to turn up the volume. I want you to take a picture. I want you to take a picture and send it to me via an email. 
oh, I've never used this before. They've got to figure it out. And it may not be fully intuitive. Your product, in many cases, because you've gotten very close to it, you see right over top of the flaws. And one of the things I've found incredibly valuable over time, put it in front of consumers. They don't care. And they will tell you all of the flaws of your product. Um, and you will quickly see, as we find, because we are insurance people creating this uh, insurance service, this comparison service, compare.com, people, we see, we create, it's like, oh, well, no, they do this, then they do this, then they do this. The customer doesn't know that. They get to that site, they get to that page, and they're confused. Why are you confused? It's obvious. It's because not every consumer knows insurance like we do. And so you have to think through how your customer is going to engage with this. And if it's a product, as we go back to our earlier conversation, that is intended to wow, it necessarily won't wow if they quickly get confused. Um, and so we talk to a lot of consumers and do an enormous amount of consumer research and testing to find out what works. And sometimes it's completely counterintuitive. And sometimes it's completely against what I would like. I would love it this way. And the customer likes it another way. Remember, you may not be your core customer. I think that is such a great point. And that has definitely happened to me in my career. A, a few years back, I had a marketing agency. And I remember going in and speaking to a local dentist, a friend of mine. And I was talking to him about Facebook advertising and the algorithm and, you know, how you do the three by three by three by, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, getting into the, to the technicalities. And he stops me and he's like, Hmm, you know, I'm really not sure how people are even going to see my ads on Facebook. How do you, how does that actually work? And I was like, Oh my goodness. I did not do a good job of understanding where his level of, of understanding came with the product that I was selling because I was so deep into it. I couldn't see, I couldn't see where he was. Cause to me it was like, Oh yeah, clearly. But you know, I was in it for years. That's a, we, that's a good thing. we you're, you're spot on. We see that with lots of uh, vendors that come in and again, they're so close to their product that they jump right over assumptions uh, that need to be made there. It's like your first conversation with him is, do you use Facebook? And if he said no, you got a very different sales pitch than, than you have to say. If he says yes, it's like, have you seen any ads on Facebook? No. Oh, well, you better show him that. Do you use Facebook and you've seen ads? Oh, yes, all the time. Okay, now I know where to start my, my conversation with. But if you had jumped in and said, let me talk to you about the differences between the sidebar versus the gone. You, you lost them already uh, from that standpoint. And you have to understand who you're pitching to. If you are pitching to people who know Facebook advertising inside and out, then you can start way down in the details. But for other folks, you got to start at the 50,000 foot level. Let's go on the internet. You've heard of the internet, right? Uh, you know, you got to work your way uh, down through that. So it's almost like, it's almost like back in geometry, back in high school, when you're, when you're uh, developing a proof and you have to start at the most basic fundamental building block, like, okay, we got this one. Now we can keep, now we can keep moving up. I one step at a time. You know, you, you, you got to work your way there. If you've made a variety of assumptions along the way, sometimes you're right. And sometimes you're not. And uh, I've spent, let's be clear. I've spent lots of money uh, on flawed assumptions uh, along the way that this is going to work great. Let's make an investment in it. And I've learned painful, expensive lessons such that I now take very small tests and validate them. And you get a little bit of data. Yes, it takes you a little bit longer, but there are very few companies that can say, I'm going to take the big swing and I know I'm going to get it right the first time. Rarely ever happens. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. Um, you know, my, my, my children, if we come all the way back to the, uh, you know, work ethic and persistence, I had my kids wanted to, they're all, they're all runners uh, and they wanted to go do a PR on the track yesterday. Um, and they go out there and do it uh, and they missed, but neither of them got it yesterday. Um, but what they did was learn from it. Uh, it's like, all right, what, what did you figure out today? It's like, well, you know, it's 90 degrees. 
this might not be the optimal time to be running a mile PR. It's kind of warm out here. Oh, okay, that's a, a good learning along the way. So next time maybe we'll come out seven in the morning. Oh, that'd be a good idea. You learn all along the way and uh, do it in the most cost-effective way as you can. I love that. I love that. So I want to weave your uh, story back in the narrative here. So you started your first business. Mm -hmm. Elephant Insurance. What happened from there? Well, um, it was a fantastic opportunity. So Admiral Group is the largest UK auto insurance company, and they wanted to come into the US. And there are not very many people who have experience starting auto insurance businesses, and I fortunately had that, and had a commonality of vision um, with the leaders over there. Um, frugality. Um, it's something that uh, I hold near and dear. It probably also comes from my upbringing in the mountains of West Virginia is you don't waste money. Um, and they um, very much had a business that said, keep your expenses uh, in check as much as you possibly, possibly can. To the tune of our earliest award we gave out as a company was the Cheap Bastard of the Month award. <laughs> and I proudly won that award. Uh, and it was, it was not about the money that you could save. It was creativity in, uh, in savings. How could you do it in, in different and creative ways? Uh, and so got the opportunity to start Elephant Insurance and it was fantastic. Um, all the ups and downs, the big decisions that you have to make along the way, some of which I nailed, some of which I got wrong. The main IT system was changed out in less than three years. So didn't make the right call on that one. Created the entity from scratch rather than buying somebody else. Huge plus on that one, made the right call. Made tons of great hires. Made some hires along the way that I regretted. Um, but all along the way, I'm building a company and enjoying the daylights out of, uh, out of building this. And we're gonna talk about compare.com. Admiral also owns a comparison engine uh, a comparison search engine in the UK at the time, the largest search engine in the UK, and it just fed their insurance company business. So I'm like, you have got to bring this business over to the U S nothing like it exists. We have kayak, we have Travelocity, we have Expedia, but they only do travel. We need the same thing for auto insurance. That what, that's what compare.com is. If you need the two second tidbit kayak for auto insurance, Expedia for auto insurance, it's that. So I said, bring it, bring it, bring it. And I kept asking over and over again. And uh, eventually they wore down and they said, yes. And they said, but you run it. That was not part of my plan. Uh, my plan was to continue to run elephant insurance. I was having a blast uh, doing so and we were, we were getting good results. Uh, but they had, I guess, seen me do reasonably uh, successful job at building one company for them and wanted me to do it again. And so while that wasn't part of the plan, which is another thing that entrepreneurs will quickly recognize is sometimes you can be aiming your business right here and an opportunity ends up right there. And you got to be willing to take a risk. Sometimes hold your ground. Sometimes take the turn. Uh, your product pivot. Uh, you don't know if it's going to be right, but you got to do it. Well, this for me was a bit of a career pivot. Here I went from running an insurance company to starting from scratch an internet company and having to do fundraising for the first time. Well, Admiral Group would um, support this uh, entity, put up a, a big chunk of money for it. I was now uh, tasked with going out and finding some other financial backers, people that heard the vision for what this company would be and said, we buy in. We buy in so much so that we'll put money where our, uh, our bet is. And we were very, very fortunate in our first round to raise up of $100 million of, uh, of capital and uh, subsequently raised another uh, $85 million. So we raised $185 million to uh, create what is uh, compare.com. That's amazing, again. And, okay, so you've raised a ton of money. You have the experience of building Elephant. And you're fired up. You're ready to go. Now, what? How, yeah, now what? Like, how did you actually build it? Well, um, we had the, the great fortune of seeing what Admiral had done overseas. 
Um, and so we've got uh, sister businesses around the world. Uh, and we did we took every opportunity to learn lessons that we could. Um, so there was some uh, beg borrowing. We didn't have to steal because they would give it to us um, uh, of information along the way there. Uh, but you also had to build the team. And that's something that we, you know, every entrepreneur, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how hardworking you are. You only got two of these and you only got 24 hours in the day. Um, and you are going to have to build team, the team around you that helps multiply your vision, uh, expands on your vision. You got to get people that are smarter than you. You got to get people that can say, I can be an expert in this particular area because you can't be an expert everywhere. And so the first thing we had to do was build the team. I was fortunate to be able to take a couple of people with permission from uh, from Elephant Insurance, but then I had to go out and build the team and build the IT infrastructure. So that's an enormous uh, part of it is getting the team together, get the IT infrastructure. But we live in a business, as I said, seven and a half billion dollars. So even though a hundred million dollars sounds like a lot, when you lay that against seven and a half billion, we're a gnat in the rearview mirror. So our next challenge was we got to figure out how to draw in consumers and we got to match them up with insurance companies and it's chicken and egg. If I get insurance consumers before I have insurance companies, the customers are gonna be pretty mad. If I get insurance companies before I've got consumers, the insurance companies are gonna be mad. And so it became this dovetailing of getting insurance companies and adding consumers along the way. And we've been very, very fortunate uh, now to have 70 plus insurance companies on there. Some of the biggest names uh, in the insurance world, names that you, know, you would know, the Liberty Mutuals of the world, the USAAs of the world, MetLife's, Geico's, you, you name it, um, they are partners of ours. And along the way, um, as we built this company, the part that makes us happiest of all is we've got two customers, the consumer and the carrier we've been able to make both of them happy. We've been able to give the insurance carriers consumers that might not have otherwise found them. And the insurance consumers, as I talked about it earlier, savings. This is not a fun product, but man, if you can enter your details one time, hit search and find out maybe you're already paying the cheapest. Great, I validated it for you. Or maybe you're sitting there as one of our new associates found out. This is her brief story. She started with us and said, you know what? I haven't actually shot my insurance in 10 or 15 years. It's kind of embarrassing. Probably since my, uh, my youngest was, uh, was born. I said, well, how long ago you know, was that? I said, well, they're both teenage drivers now. And I knew we had her at this point in time. If you haven't shopped your insurance in 10 or 15 years and you now have teenage drivers, you can save some money because teenage drivers are expensive. Lo and behold, she comes on our platform and finds out she can save $4,000. $4,000. Now she's mad because as she's sitting here, she's going, all these years, I've been wasting this money. What could I have been doing with this money along the way? Uh, and obviously she switched because maybe if you only save 40 bucks, you go, eh, I don't want to deal with the hassle. But there are very few people in this world that are going to turn down $4,000 of savings. And we've had other examples, obviously, here in the office and around the country of that's what we do. We ultimately make it simple for those consumers to find those savings. And that's why we do it. And that's why the team is here. That's why we stay motivated and continue to try to change how U.S. consumers shop for auto insurance. What's it like to be at the helm of something so far reaching and so impactful because telling the story is one thing and I love the story and you know, the story is critical, but I feel like a lot of people talk about like, Oh, and that, you know, like you were saying, Oh, now we have 70, you know, 70 plus partners. Well, that's a huge deal. Like that's amazing. And, you are the person that put in the blood, sweat, and tears to make that happen. So like, what does it actually feel like to be you? What does it actually feel like to be in your position? Well, first of all, I didn't do it. It was the team. 
Um, let's be 100% clear. I come back to that same point as I don't care how good you are. I don't care how motivated you are. You can't do it alone. And there is an incredible group of people behind this wall uh, behind me here that made that happen. I had the distinct pleasure and honor of leading the company and they were gracious enough to let me do so. Um, you, it is a incredibly exhilarating role and it's incredibly terrifying. Because you're also taking their careers, their families under your, uh, under your watch. Um, they're expecting you to lead them in the right direction. And let's be clear, there is not a map. Uh, and so it is one of those things that time to time you go, boy, I hope I'm turning this thing in the right direction. And if you're lucky, if you're good, more often than not, you'll turn it in the right direction. And if you consult the team that's around you, the power of many people being involved in that ultimate decision-making process is huge. Um, we had our, uh, our leadership meeting uh, before, this, uh, before this podcast. And I said, hey, here's a decision I made over the weekend. Um, I think it's in the right direction. I'd love your feedback. And luckily, I got that. I said, yeah, yeah, we think that's the, the right direction. Let's, uh, let's keep doing that. But I've had times where I've got a very strong leadership team that is very comfortable going, no, that was wrong. Don't do that. We think you, you, you made a right when you should have made a left. Can we go back and change it? And in most cases, I'm not going to make huge decisions without their, their consultation because that's part of the value of having those incredibly gifted people around you is to benefit from their knowledge, their experience, and their perspective. So to the heart of your question it's incredibly exhilarating to get to run a company is incredible. Um, but it's terrifying at the same time. And it is an easy thing. Um, I used to think that everybody wanted my job. I used to think that everybody wanted to run a company. And I think a lot of people like it from, you know, window shopping. Oh, wouldn't it be great too? but all the blood, sweat, and tears that we've talked about along the way, there's a lot of people who aren't willing to commit that and don't want the responsibility. I mean, there are people in this world who say, I, I could never fire anybody. If you can never fire anybody, you should never hire anybody because you've got, if you're willing to hire them, you've got to be willing to fire them. And it's why you should take so much care in the recruiting process. And in both my times at, uh, at Elephant, and at Compare, um, up until Elephant had 125 people, I believe was the number. I interviewed every single one of them before they were hired. And finally, my recruiting department came and said, you're killing us. We can't get people in fast enough. Your calendar is always this bottleneck for us to get people hired. Will you please entrust the responsibility of hiring people, um, the making the final uh, you know, determination, to some other people. And I ultimately had to let go and, and give that up. But for me, it was an incredibly important thing is if somebody got into the organization and weren't a fit, I wanted to look in the mirror and go, you know who did that? This guy. Um, and uh, But again, it's part of growth. You have to be willing to cede control to other people away as well along the way. What have been some of the biggest failures that have occurred on the path and what were the biggest insights that you gleaned from them? Assumptions. Assumptions are incredibly dangerous. Um, and I, I've found when you make an assumption about how something's going to play out, test it, validate it. Um, because when you start making big bets, uh, I go back to the, the early policy administration, the big IT system that we did for, uh, for Elephant. And I thought we made the, uh, the right call on that. And it was very obvious within a few months that we'd made the wrong call. But we wanted to hit our go live date. And so we ended up pushing forward with a system that we knew was not going to be long term successful for us. And as I said, within the next three years, we'd already switched it out at, at enormous IT cost, at enormous pain to the organization, et cetera. It was um, a lesson 
a very hard lesson to learn, a very expensive lesson to learn. Uh, and so watch the assumptions that you make um, and sit down and think about the assumptions that you are making. Sometimes that's the harder part of that equation is you don't even realize what assumptions that, uh, that you're making. And that's good to have people around you to challenge that might not know the context of the question you're trying to answer to say, well, well, why? And you go, well, because you always turn right. Well, but I wouldn't have known that. So why, why did you automatically assume that everybody's going to know to turn right? Oh, okay. Good point. If I, if I take that assumption away, do I come to the same conclusion on this particular problem? And that's very, very healthy and very important. Um, one of the biggest successes that we've had, and, and it's an intangible, but it's incredibly powerful, culture. The culture that you create um, can be a fuel for your success or an anchor to your failure. Um, and figuring out what works for you, how to instill it, and then to quickly realize you have very little long-term control. It has to be embedded in your people in the overall organization. One of the things that we uh, had at both organizations that we said you would do is you're gonna smile and laugh every day. You're gonna have fun. You are gonna spend more time at work than you're gonna spend anywhere else. I tell folks, I, I joke and say, there's three things you need to get right in life. Find the right spouse, partner, whoever it is for you, don't care who it is, find the right one for you. Find the right job because you're going to spend an enormous amount of time with those people's, those people in that occupation and find a good mattress because you're going to spend a lot of time on that as well. You get those three things right in life, you're going to be pretty happy. Um, and so we wanted to create a work environment, that number two part uh, there where people said, you know what? I enjoy going to work. I enjoy my colleagues. I am invigorated by the challenge of what we are trying to do. Um, we do those things. It makes a big difference. Now, the culture is going to be different for different places. We said smile and laughter. We also say hard work. We also say honesty. And there's a variety of things that are important to us within this, uh, this company and this culture. And it's going to be different for each person. Equality is incredibly important. If you were to walk out this door into the office environment here, no one as an office, myself included. Matter of fact, I sit closest to the front door. And who goes and answers the front door sometimes when the doorbell rings? I do, because you know what? Everybody needs to be willing to do that. And you create an atmosphere of, I don't care what the task is, everybody here needs to be willing to do it. And then again, you come all the way back to those West Virginia roots. You know what? Sometimes you just gotta do the dirty tasks. And I grew up doing them. I'm willing to still do them to this day. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about how, how much you've accomplished in your life. Because first of all, I mean, the, the numbers that we, that we really talked about were $185 million raised. It's not too shabby, <laughs> right? Just, just start off with, um, and, and then the 70 partners that y'all have, um, and you've been doing, been doing this for quite a while now. So how big have you, have you built compare? Like how big is it really? Because obviously you probably have a better understanding of that than somebody looking from the outside. Um, so how high up the mountain have you really climbed? Oh, we're still at the base of the mountain. Uh, the opportunity is still huge and still lays in front of us. There's still so many consumers out there that don't shop for their auto insurance and then don't shop it in a comparison environment. So I would say we're a step or two up the mountain, but the stories of climbing that mountain are what's going to be awesome. And yes, we've raised a lot of money. Yes, we've got an enormous amount of carrier partners. Yes, we've helped millions of consumers each year shop for their auto insurance, saving tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. But we still have a ton of room to go. Um, this is something out there that I remember growing up relatively poor. Um, and there are a lot of households that can use this savings. Um, we talked about vacations. We talked about down payments. There are some people that finding this savings means they don't have to choose between rent and the water payment 
or the kids' lunches and gasoline and those kinds of things. That's enormously powerful. And I'd like to help those folks most of all, because they're the ones that are living paycheck to paycheck. I think it was the um, U.S. government put out a survey, and I'm going to get the numbers not exactly correct here, but it was 58% have less than $1,000 of savings and 39% have no savings at all of the U.S. population. Well, you know what? I at Compare, if you want to talk about success, that would be success for us is if we can change those numbers by helping people still find great insurance. Let's be clear. This is an incredibly important and valuable product. Just don't overspend on it. There's many great insurance companies out there. We'll help you find one that will charge you the least. Well, you know, I, I do think that you're being very humble um, because I think that being, being, at the head of the company that is helping millions of people make better buying decisions and to really save money. I mean, that's incredible. And, um, you know, I very much admire the work that you're doing and, and um, all the people that you're helping and the savings that you're creating. And um, I just wanted to, uh, to tell you that and, and uh, to, to tell you, thank you for, for yeah. everything. That you're doing. Thank you. We, we just hope we can do it for more. Yes, sir. So I have two more quick questions for you. Okay. And we'll, We'll wrap it on up. Um, is there anything about yourself that you think is an important part of who you are that we did not talk about today? In other words, what did I miss? Well, we talked about the work ethic. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a persistence message is uh, there's working hard and there's being willing to work hard for a really long time. Um, and uh, I'll give you the shorter version of, the, of this story and sort of the, the numbers that have built up over time is I had a colleague of mine um, who had been injured and had gained a bit of weight and decided he wanted a challenge out there to uh, get himself fit again. And he, with his injury, kept him from running. But he could still swim. He could still bike. So he said, you know what? I'm going to do an Ironman. And this was back in 2010. And I had seen an Ironman before, but I didn't know what in the heck it was. And, uh, it was just this, this, this crazy race that crazy people do. And he said, I'm going to swim uh, 2.4 miles. I'm going to bike 112 miles. The fateful decision that day to say, if you are crazy enough, I think I said dumb enough um, to do that, I'll do it with you. And he shook my hand, but he was, he was very kind. He says, you don't know what you just signed up for. I've, I've, I've been researching this. You have no idea what you just signed up for. Well, I read up on it and it's an incredible challenge. And I said, you know what? I will take that on. And over the, uh, the last uh, eight, nine years, uh, uh, I have proceeded to do 17 Ironmans, um, wow. uh, several dozen half and uh, a multitude of marathons. And I love the challenge, uh, the persistence. And I love what it has, we talked about my, my kids earlier and, and what you want to pass on to them, what it has taught and shown them about their willingness to fight, to, you know, it can be through schoolwork, it can be through races, whatever it is. My uh, middle daughter has already done a half marathon. My youngest daughter has done a 10K and my son at age 15 did a marathon. Um, as much as I am proud of what I've been able to individually accomplish, seeing it translate into them and their willingness to say, I'm not giving up. I can take the pain. I can take the fight. I can work harder than other people at challenges that many people go, that's just not possible. Um, it's incredible. And so for me, having that persistence, that, uh, that uh, perseverance um, is important, but it's just as important to pass it on to uh, my children and those that I work with. So last question for you, then, uh, then we'll wrap it on up. But what question should I be asking you, like specifically me asking specifically you, that I just wouldn't think to ask? Great question. Um, I, I would come back to one that we we never spend enough time on because you're going to have a lot more of them. Your failures. Um, 
success is, uh, if you think about businesses that are started, 90% of them are gone in a couple of, uh, a couple of years. Um, and you have to have the ability to na navigate those failures. Um, and so it's not necessarily a specific question, but it comes back to those attitudes and attributes that you have to have if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to run a company, you are going to fail a lot more than you're going to succeed. And being okay with that and being able to get back up from them and dust yourself off and fight again. Um, that I think is one of the most important parts of being an entrepreneur, of being a business person. Now you need, if you're going to be successful, you ultimately need to have some big successes and hopefully those will come for, uh, for your listeners uh, out there. Uh, but you're going to navigate along the way, a bunch of failures, figure out your way through them. So again, Andrew, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show today for sharing this time with me. It's been very special and, and really has been an honor to speak with you. So thank you. My pleasure, Ben. It's been a privilege. And uh, to everybody who's watching and listening, I want to thank you and express my gratitude um, that y'all would take the time. I know your time is very, very valuable. That y'all would take the time to be here with us today to, uh, to share in this discussion, to be a part of it. So thank you. And I will see y'all on the next episode.